welcome to the Script Podcast. This is Aisha Sharma. This episode, I'm speaking with Cybin CEO Doug Drisdell about psychedelic-based therapeutics, the challenges of studying psychiatric conditions, and the role of Big Pharma in the future of this sector. So Doug, I wanted to start by talking about the history of psychedelic-based therapeutics. Could you talk us through how R&D in this area kicked off and how it's been developing over time? Yes, a novel area, but with uh, a long history. Uh, So uh, psilocybin and LSD were first created in a lab uh, around, let's see, 80 years ago. Um, So we've known about some of these molecules for, uh, for quite some time. Uh, you know, academic research has really picked up in the last 10 to 15 years uh, with a fair number of human studies, small human studies. Uh, but it's only been really in the last five years that pharma companies have really started working on on development. Uh, and I think that's really an important distingu- distinguishing factor because it's one thing to have a molecule. It's, very, it's a very different thing to turn that molecule into a drug, into a pharmaceutical. Uh, if you go through all the uh, development stages, of course, to do that. And with regards to social attitudes and education on psychedelic therapies, was there any stigma or pushback surrounding their use, at least in the early stages? And if so, how has this stigma changed over time? Yeah, it's changing gradually. Um, thankfully, we have regulators like the FDA uh, granting breakthrough therapy status for psilocybin and MDMA. Uh, in the UK, the MHRA there, which is the FDA equivalent, has provided innovation passports or kind of fast tracking, if you like, to MDMA and, and DMT. Um, but there's still this large overhang of misinformation that has come from the war on drugs. And so in some sectors, it's like it's still not well understood. Um, there are still healthcare professionals, regulators and payers that uh, don't fully understand uh, these treatments. I was speaking to a scientist the other day uh, that is an advisor to some of these regulators who believe that psilocybin was addictive and toxic. And that's far from the truth. You know, um, it would take a thousand doses for psilocybin to be toxic. So it's really quite safe. And it shows no uh, addictive properties uh, at all, no sort of uh, no returning behavior uh, at all. So there's this misunderstanding uh, that's come from the war on drugs, where I think many folks have treated all of those class one drugs the same, you know, whether it's cocaine or heroin or whatever, put them in the same bucket, if you like. So that's one of the challenges ahead of us is uh, to overcome that that misinformation. And, you know, our plan is to generate safety and efficacy data from our clinical studies to, to help do that. Some of the main compounds being explored in this area are psilocybin and MDMA. Psybin itself is working on psilocybin and is specifically developing a deuterated psilocybin analogue, CYB003. Could you talk us through why you went for psilocybin, what the benefits of deuteration are, and how your lead candidate differs from the competition? Yeah, so CYB3, uh, we have now completed the uh, IND enabling preclinical work. That's a very exciting milestone for us. So we're looking to transition that into the clinic, as you said, a phase one, two A study for major depressive disorder, where we'll be looking at repeat dosing, uh, two doses uh, in, in, in patients with MDD uh, to see the benefits uh, of that. 
We're also looking to progress our uh, DMT candidate, which is CYB4, it's a deuterated version of DMT. And that's being designed to have a smoother onset and longer duration. Uh, DMT um, can be very, very short in terms of duration, maybe six to 10 minutes for some patients. So quite aggressive, it's an aggressive plasma spike. So our goal has been to smooth out that plasma curve create a smoother experience and extended experience uh, for, for patients. And we think looking at the preclinical data that CYB4 might be, I might have a half-life about three times that of, of DMT, but that still means that patients could be in and out of the clinic uh, within an hour, uh, maybe maybe 30 or 40 minutes for treatment, uh, 10 minutes or so for DMT to get out and CYB4 to get out of the body. So that makes that very, very uh, scalable. And we're looking to start a pilot study uh, later this year uh, with a regulatory filing in the second quarter here. And then lastly, CYB5 is a, is a discovery candidate that we think has potential uh, to treat neuroinflammation, um, a condition that may be underlying con uh, diseases like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or MS. So that's uh, that's the molecule that it's not in psychiatry, but in other interesting CNS disorders that we're uh, we're potentially looking to partner with, with with a pharma company. You mentioned the importance of reducing duration of effect, especially since these drugs have to be given in a clinical setting with therapists present to observe the patient. And longer duration of effect can mean more time in the therapist's office. Do you think R&D could ever advance to the extent that we get a psychedelic-based therapeutic that patients can take at home? Potentially, uh, it, it may be some time for that. You know, as we look at the the wealth of uh, data and all the studies that are out there across every psychedelic molecule, uh, it's clear that um, combining these uh, treatments with uh, some form of psychotherapy, so psychotherapeutic support, is is helpful. So having having a therapist alongside uh, the patient is, uh, appears to improve the outcomes. So for now we're 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 certainly planning to uh, treat patients in a clinical setting and combine with you know some form of psychotherapeutic support. But it may be that in the future that as, as we learn more about these these treatments that we can create digital tools or other monitoring tools for safety that can help patients take these these at home. Um, but there's always that. There's always that possibility of a, of a traumatic experience because when when a patient is tackling their underlying trauma, the, the trauma that's perhaps causing their depression or has led to their addiction, um, those sessions can be sometimes traumatic. Um, so you know, while while we're in this phase of these treatments, the where they're clearly generating psychedelic effects. Um, I think it's likely that we'll they'll be they'll stay in the, in the clinical setting for quite some time. And it seems that there are some unique challenges to developing drugs for psychiatric disorders, especially when it comes to human clinical studies. For example, Compass Pathways Phase II data for its psilocybin-based candidate COMP360 in treatment-resistant depression showed that patients suffered from self-harm and suicidal ideation. But it was unclear whether this was the result of the drug or of their underlying condition. Could you tell us more about the challenges specific to this therapeutic area and how they could be overcome in future? Yes, uh, yes, there are challenges, and particularly with the group that you mentioned, which is really the treatment-resistant depression uh, group. Um, and this might be as many as a third of patients that might not respond to traditional therapy. 
Uh, and many of those, you know, many of those refractory patients may not respond to psychedelics as well. I mean, these aren't panaceas, you know, nothing, no, no drugs work for everyone. Um, we're targeting major depressive disorder, which is a larger population of patients that uh, really see limited benefit from SSRIs today. So this is an, an opportunity to to treat that broader group. Um, but those more difficult patients that you mentioned, the most refractory patients, the TRD patients, um, are often in a foggy state, a low energy state. Um, no energy to be a danger to themselves if they're generally not engaging in suicidal behavior. But there is a theory that when they feel better after being treated, uh, they become more motivated, unfortunately, and, and we saw some of the suicidal ideation in a study uh, recently uh, in this very difficult, uh, difficult group. So there are challenges, of course, with with these more more difficult groups, particularly if you have to take them off existing therapy in order to, to study them. Uh, so Simon is not addressing uh, that refractory group at this point. We're addressing major depressive disorder, uh, which is still you know, two thirds of the depressed population. I also wanted to speak about the financial situation in this sector. As I understand it, there's a lack of funding for these psychiatric conditions, despite a high unmet need. This could be due to a range of factors such as stigma or lack of understanding of disease mechanism. What have you observed with regards to funding trends and how do you think they could change over time? You're right, there's been a lack of investment in psychiatry for maybe three decades. There's been, there's been very little innovation. And I think that's uh, because when we look at psychiatric drugs, drugs for depression, um, many uh, new treatments over the years have been marginally better, incrementally better. And uh, you know we have, a, we have a, a reimbursement environment, both in the US and outside the US, that really doesn't um, support marginal increments you know of, of improvement and if we look we've got mainstream low-cost treatments that appear to be good enough in many cases um, but clearly there's, there's a massive unmet need as we know but that it's difficult to, to to develop treatments that have small incremental changes this is one of the benefits of, of psychedelics is that it's a it's a paradigm shift I mean the opportunity to give patients uh, many months of remission from their depressive symptoms or their addictive cravings from just one or two doses is a complete shift and uh, and uh, in how we would treat these conditions and a massive step forward and that's why we've seen quite a lot of investment in the psychedelic sector there are 60 public companies developing uh, developing psychedelic uh, treatments or, or within the sector right now and you know, I think they're all, you know, many of us are working to differentiate and find the best treatment uh, uh, option as we go forward. And Cybin, as you know, we're working on developing derivatives and analogs of psilocybin and DMT to try to um, try to turn them into therapeutics. The molecule itself does not equal a, a drug. In many ways, discovery is relatively simple. I mean, we have a pipeline of 50 or 60 molecules. Uh, so many options to pursue. It's really the development is where innovation lies, you know, and uh, understanding the safety, the side effects, the dosing, durability, indications, and the effects of long-term uh, exposure. So I do think we'll see some really innovative treatments coming out of the sector, um, and uh, we're certainly starting to see interest 
from big pharma in the space. I don't think the big pharma can afford to sit on the on the sidelines. Uh, this is, you know, the, as I said, the first major innovation in psychiatry for maybe three decades. I think you just preempted my next question because I wanted to ask, what is the role of big pharma in the future of developing these therapies? Do you foresee more collaboration between biotech and pharma? Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable. Um, first of all, you know, when you have this many companies uh, innovating, um, they, they can't all survive. So there'll be some consolidation. It's it's already beginning in the sector with a number of companies looking to to combine or, or, or sell. Um, but I think me, a big farmer, is clearly interested. We've seen a, definitely an increased interest uh, this year compared to last year. Um, really trying, where they're really trying to understand, you know, the development pathways and uh, the commercial models. Um, but they can afford to watch and wait, watch and wait for data to come and uh, for IP, you know, to the IP landscape to to show itself. It's still a bit, uh, still a bit in the dark there. Um, but I think it's, it is inevitable uh, that you'll see partnerships, big farmers sitting on 600, $650 billion of cash in an inflationary environment where they're under pressure to deploy it. So I think it's only natural that you'll see some strategic partnerships or I mean, maybe even M&A over the next uh, 12 months. Thank you for joining us. Oh, wonderful. My pleasure. Remember to sign into Script to get access to our more extensive content or register for a free trial if you're not already a subscriber to see what you're missing. Bye for now. <laughs>